Coming up on Stu Does America, you won't hear about Trump and his son-in-law's successes in the Middle East from our media, but luckily, Glenn Beck's Jason Buttrell is here to give us the scoop. Then I'm joined by Dan Andros of Faith Wire to talk about the attacks on our sports and our churches for shame. You and me, evil YouTube algorithm robots, let's kick their asses together. Subscribe to the channel, hit the little bell for reminders, and like all the videos, even this one, right now, before you forget or I say something that pisses you off. We can do this. If only we could use our podcast numbers on the YouTube bots, they continue to skyrocket because you guys continue to rate and review. Don't let up. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. And big things are on the horizon for Blaze TV. Don't miss out on the action when it happens by subscribing at blazetv.com slash stew. Be sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Everyone's got an opinion on the election. But tonight, we're going to the one guy who hasn't been wrong, like, ever. Let's do Trump's keys to the White House. Stu does America. So what should we expect to happen in November? I don't know. Do you know? If you know, tell me. There are approximately one zillion prediction models out there attempting to tell you who is going to win. The best known is the 538 model from Nate Silver that launched this week. That gives Joe Biden a 73 percent chance of winning the election. The Economist has a model as well. They say Biden has an 88 percent chance to win the election. If you think either one of those is wrong, good news. You can make money off of that at predictit.org. You can uh, make real money predicting the outcome on politics, and it's actually legal. The betting markets right now have Biden at a 59% chance to win. Some uh, would say that's a bargain. Some would say that's way overpriced. But either way, you can go make some cash. There is another model that isn't dependent on polls or prediction markets at all. It was developed by Alan Lichtman. Uh, He's a professor at American University, along with a Russian seismologist who specialized in predicting earthquakes. They first utilized it in 1984, correctly predicting Ronald Reagan as as the victor, although a brain-dead hamster could have predicted Reagan was going to win in 1984. He also called Bush in 88 when he was behind in the polls, and then Clinton in 92 and 96. Through this point, the model was only picking the winner of the popular vote, not the Electoral College. So he picked Gore, which was technically right, I guess. But after the whole shenanigans that went on there, which was uh, a national disaster, uh, wound up turning out okay, I guess. Uh, After the electoral and popular vote split, he decided to change it to picking the electoral winner. And then he was right again in 2004 and 2008 and 2012 and probably most difficult, uh, difficult uh, 2016. In fact, Donald Trump even sent him a signed article of his prediction after he won. Now, Lichtman is no hardcore conservative or anything. He actually wrote a book in 2017 called The Case for Impeachment. He ran for the Senate as a Democrat in Maryland, which puts him just to the right of Friedrich Engels. But he tries to uh, keep politics out of it, as he says. I'm a Democrat, and the toughest thing in being a forecaster is to keep your own politics out of it. It is pretty hard to do. So here's how the model works. It's based on 13 fundamental questions about the race and the state of the nation based on every election going back to the late 1800s. Each question gets a true or false rating. If it's true, it's good for Trump. If it's false, it's bad for Trump. So let's look at this 13 questions and see how it all adds up. Let's start with the easiest that we probably would all agree on. 
there is no serious contest for the incumbent party nomination. Uh, Lichtman's rating here uh, is true. Uh, of course, it's a little disrespectful to Bill Weld and Mark Sanford, but it is respectful of reality. Point for Trump. Incumbency. The incumbent party candidate is the sitting president. Okay, well, hmm. is Trump the sitting president? I want you to noodle this for a little bit. The suspense is killing me. Oh my gosh, the Lickman rating is true. Okay, another one for Trump. None yet for Biden. Two zip. Next one is third party. Is there a th- significant third party or independent campaign going on? Lickman rating there is true. Um, now, so it's kind of the way this is worded. Sometimes it's a little bit confusing, but it's is there no significant third party uh, or independent campaign? So that's true. That's a point for Trump. It's disrespectful to Kanye, but again, respectful to reality. So, so far, it's three for Trump and none for Biden. Short term economy is next. The economy is not in recession during the election campaign. Well, this is looking good for a while, right? I mean, uh, but then you got the Rona. The Rona kind of cracked down on all of us. Damn you, Wuhan. I would say it's, it's a little selective here, uh, uh, this part, to quibble a bit with this particular rating. One of the races he predicted uh, was two years early. I mean, in, in this one, if he had done his prediction two years early or even one year early before the election, this would be a point for Trump. But instead, this time, he's just doing it a few months early and we're in the middle of a pandemic. But the Lickman rating is... False. So now it's a three to one. Trump's still leading. The next one is long term economy. This has a a statistical uh, number here. It's real per capita economic growth during the term equals or exceeds mean growth during the two previous terms. So basically, I don't know, is the economy going well generally while he's been in office? Um, You know, the same time period thing applies. But if you're measuring it now, it's not looking good. Damn you, Wuhan. I will say that, like, you know, they're saying that because of the coronavirus, we've had this gigantic drop in the last few months. And that means that the entire uh, four years of Donald Trump has now dipped below that level. Any other time during his uh, four years, you'd have a much better chance on this one. But the Lichtman rating here is false. Another point for Joe Biden. It's Trump three, Biden two. Next question. Party mandate. After the midterm elections, the incumbent party holds more seats in the U.S. House of Representatives than the previous midterm elections. This one's kind of worded a little bit strangely, but I think we're comparing 2014 and 2018 because of the last two midterms. After the 2014 elections, Republicans had 247 seats. After the 2018 elections, they had 199. So the Lichtman rating there is false. We've got it at three to three. The drama builds. Next up, social unrest. Uh Uh-oh. There is no sustained social unrest during the term. I assume this one favors Trump because we don't have any social unrest in this country. We only have peaceful protesters who happen to like to set fire to their local auto zone. Peacefully. Peacefully. So I assume Trump wins. Let's see how Lichtman ranks on this one. Lichtman rating. Ooh, false. Hmm. Wow. Why does he not believe that black lives matter? Well, Trump three, Biden four is the current score. 
Next one is scandal. The incumbent administration is untainted by major scandal. Uh, you could argue that that things like the Mueller report were bogus, uh, but there was a House impeachment along with stuff like the Trump Tower meeting and Stormy Daniels and blah, 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 blah. So the Lickman rating here is false. Another point for Biden. I mean, the guy, look, the guy wrote an impeachment book in 2017. You cannot possibly be surprised. That's how he ranked that one. Trump three, Biden five. Ooh. Next up, the incumbent party charisma. Hmm. The incumbent party uh, candidate is charismatic or a national hero. This one's interesting. I mean, on one hand, obviously Trump is charismatic. He was a big celebrity beforehand, and he demands attention, certainly, wherever he goes. The dictionary definition of charismatic is, quote, exercising a compelling charm which inspires devotion in others. I don't know that even Trump would say necessarily it was his charm. That inspires devotion. I mean, the guy was like really famous for saying you're fired, but he definitely inspires a lot of devotion. Here's how Lichtman explains this one. The incumbent party candidate is charismatic. Donald Trump is a great showman, but he only appeals to a narrow slice of the American people. And as a result, false. In case you're wondering, that is his real hair. Uh, so, so obviously the Lichtman rating there is false. I got to say, I'm not sure I agree with that one, uh, but I guess it is his list and he's got some idea of how he's defining charisma. But at the very best, that's borderline. I'm going to put a flag on this one and just list that one as questionable. Maybe we'll come back to it. Uh, The next category is the challenger, uh, the challenger party charisma. Now, this is the challenging party candidate is not charismatic, charismatic or a national hero. Now, Biden may have been charismatic in 1872, but sadly, this model only looks back at elections to 1880. It's sad. Uh, Since they took the hair sniffing and inner thigh massages away from uh, him, really, Joe has no personality at all. Uh, This is a tough one for Joe. Uh, He's not particularly charismatic at this point. He could barely speak. Uh, The Lichtman rating is true. Uh, That's a good one for Trump, by the way. That means the score is uh, Trump four, Biden six. A little comeback happening here. Policy change. The incumbent administration affects major changes in national policy. Hmm, this one is interesting. I mean, has Trump done this, would you say? Here's Lichtman's analysis. The White House has made major changes to national policy. Through his big tax cut, but mostly through his executive orders, Trump has fundamentally changed the policies of the Obama era so true. Hmm. I mean, the tax plan was okay. It wasn't great. It was okay, though. I'm, I'm happy to have a little bit more of my, my own money. Uh, He's definitely passed some executive orders and signed some. I'm not sure I'd say he's fundamentally changed the policies of the country, though, would you? I mean, Congress can barely pass the name of a post office at this point. There's there hasn't there's been a lot of gridlock. He's done some really good things uh, that we've commented on over and over again here. But has he fundamentally changed the policies of the United States? I'm not sure if I'd agree with that. But the Lichtman rating here is, of course, true. That means Trump five, Biden six. Oh, this is a barn burner. Next up is foreign military failure. The question, uh, the statement, I guess. Uh, The incumbent administration suffers no major failure in foreign or military affairs. 
Okay, no, right? I mean, there haven't been any big failures. Pretty self-explanatory here. Despite all the war and tragedy and all of the missiles that were supposed to fly and everyone who was going to be murdered and killed and all these terrible things, he's moving the, the, the embassy to Jerusalem. It's just going to cause war after war. Really not much came to fruition to the disappointment of the media. Lichtman rating here is true. He agrees. Okay, now... This is good. This is this is a good battle. It's six to six now here. Uh, and it's time for the last category. The last one we put here is foreign military success. The incumbent administration achieves a major success in foreign or military affairs. Let me give you Lickman's take first and then I can complain about it. The White House has a major success abroad. While Trump hasn't had any big splashy failures, he hasn't had any major successes either. So false. I mean, this one's just not right, is it? To be fair, this was made just before the breakthrough in Israel, uh, with the first Arab country in a quarter century recognizing the Jewish state. But the biggest international issue by far when Trump was elected was, can you remember? A little thing called ISIS. Remember them? Remember the caliphate? The fact that lots of people wouldn't even remember that shows you how well Trump did with it. He got rid of a budding caliphate, and that is a definitely, I mean, without question, definitely a foreign policy success. However, Lichtman's rating there is false. My rating is true, and I'm right. Because that's how this works. I mean, it is my show. Um, technically, I guess, uh, even with my change in the last category, Lichtman ratings uh, would indicate Biden would win the election, however, as the challenger only needs six points. That's how his scale works. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't have whoever wins more, the more dots uh, is the winner. That's how I would have done it. But, you know, it's not my little game. But it does depend on if you think Trump is charismatic. So the entire thing basically rides on the idea that Trump is charismatic and that ISIS wasn't a big deal, which I guess the media can think that if they want. The media certainly used to think Trump is charismatic. For example, this interview from The Atlantic from a 2016 story entitled Why People Fall for Charismatic Leaders, quote, would you call Trump a charismatic leader? Why or why not? Uh, I absolutely would call him a charismatic leader. And that's pretty clear, right? Or this headline from The Guardian, Donald Trump is the, arch- I can never say this stupid word, he's the far-right charismatic leader, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, but his magic won't last. Has it lasted on you? Are you still under his spell? Think about it. Or this book from a former head of psychological profiling at the CIA, Dangerous Charisma, the Political Psychology of Donald Trump and His Followers. So I'm going to give that to, uh, point to Trump too, and therefore Trump wins! Congratulations! Mr. President, you've won the election in a model that likely has only been right through a bunch of obvious common sense and, um, you know, moments and combined with probably a little luck and some strange timing decisions right after we arbitrarily decided to basically change a bunch of categories that the guy who invented the model was wrong about. I mean, we're just kind of telling him he's wrong about his own categories. But with that happening, yay, four more years. You did it. What this actually probably really only reveals is how close this race is when you base it on the fundamentals. You know, if a vaccine's announced and is working and the economy is roaring, wouldn't that change his economy question? Just a couple of minor tweaks here and there, and that could turn things around. Look, would you rather be up by eight instead of down by eight in August? Yeah, sure. 
But it's still August. And at the end of the day, you only have to be ahead on one day in November, something that is absolutely still in reach for Donald Trump. So do you have kids who are in high school or maybe going into high school, uh, maybe leaving high school, looking at college? You're probably familiar with the SAT or the ACT. These are truly the two most powerful forces driving curriculum and instruction in the United States today. And there's no question that the College Board, who owns the SAT, is a far left organization. We've been telling you they actually put a Bernie Sanders op-ed in the SAT. Can you imagine finding out that your kid was reading Bernie Sanders op-eds to figure out if they can go to college? I guess it's a good line for college these days, because if you if you agree with everything Bernie Sanders says, I guess you're allowed in. The good news is there's a company taking on the SAT and the ACT. It's the Classic Learning Test, or CLT. We've, we've talked about this. It's just a, it's just a great program. Um, they've been around for like four years. They've already been adopted by more than 200 colleges. Hundreds of colleges are already offering tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships for CLT scores. And nearly every college will now consider CLT scores as at least a supplemental component of an application. In other words, no matter what, it's a good idea to do this. The CLT is shorter than the uh, SAT and the ACT, and students now take it from the comfort of home through remote proctoring technology. Bottom line is, it's a lot easier uh, to uh, do the actual test. I mean, it's an easier test, but it's like it's easier to go through and do the actual function of the test. And you're not going to be berated by Bernie Sanders in the middle of it. And I feel like every time I see a picture of Bernie Sanders, I feel like he's yelling at me. He just looks like he's yelling at me all the time. The first CLT of the year is August 22nd, and the deadline for registering is rapidly approaching. If you know a high schooler, if you have one, uh, you ha- have one yourself, if you are one yourself, don't miss out. Save your seat and register today. CLTExam.com. CLTExam.com. Go there now. CLTExam.com. Register today. Joining us, the head writer and researcher for Glenn Beck on the Glenn Beck program. It's Jason Buttrell. Jason, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, this is a momentous day for me, Stu. I've always wanted to have someone mimic my hand gestures with a TV in their lap. Mm-hmm. So this is a big, 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 big day. Yeah, that's always been your goal, and I always thought that was a little strange. But, <laughs> hey, you know, you don't have high aspirations, per se. Um, <laughs> no. I mean, a bigger aspiration is two appearances on this program in the same week. It's a big deal. It must mean big news is breaking. In fact, you came on right before sort of this news broke on, I think it was Wednesday, uh, the news broke on Thursday of this big deal in the Middle East with the Trump administration, Israel, the UAE. Everyone's calling it historic, is it? Um, historic. Uh, that would be a severe understatement is the way that I would describe this. Um, this is this is huge, Stu. This was, I tell you what, to, to be a little history nerd really quick, it was predicted back in, I think, the early 1920s by a Ukrainian Jew uh, by the name of Jevatinsky. And he wrote this essay called the Iron Wall Essay. And people that have been studying the region have been looking at this essay for a while. But basically what he described was a two-part process. One was that the Arab nation was never going to accept the Jews coming back to their homeland. So they first, one, had to establish a nation, a strong nation uh, that was very, very military, powerful. It was supported by strong allies. That was the only way it was going to get done. And there was going to be radicals that were going to, for multiple, multiple years, that were going to push back and they were make it very, very hard. So he said that it was going to take several generations, but eventually these radicals in the, in the Arab world would eventually come to, you know, 
give concessions towards mm-hmm. uh, the Israelis. And that would enable the Israelis to then give concessions back. Well, what he predicted is exactly how things have been progressing really since the nation of Israel was established. What we saw just a couple of days ago was stage two, which is now they're starting to give concessions on both sides. And it's opening up the process for more and more peace to spread out all throughout the the, the region. You're going to look back on that date and say that's exactly when it started. Because, hmm. I mean, it seems like one of those things where it must be a big deal because I've heard mostly praise for it, even from the media uh, saying that it's generally a good thing. The only Biden. Th- yeah, even <laughs> exactly. Even Joe Biden is saying it's a positive. The only thing is I've seen as far as a little hesitation. And of course, you have to have some level of of, uh, you know, uh, careful optimism here because it's this region and everything falls apart all the time. The two things I've heard are, one, the UAE kind of used the term roadmap in their initial response. Um, And the other one was, you know, it's not like the the Israelis didn't commit to actually pulling out of these areas. They just seemed to give a sort of surface concession, which wasn't really much of anything. So my my take on that is I don't believe this is just me personally. I don't believe that Netanyahu ever actually planned on moving into the West Bank and annexing those territories. If that's what you're talking mm-hmm. about. I don't I don't think that's what he planned from the beginning. I think that two things. I think that the Trump administration moving the U.S. embassy into Jerusalem was historic. I think that he uh, got a lot of leverage when he did that. Um, with Netanyahu, They're, they built a trust there. I, whether the Trump administration was in with Netanyahu, I, I'm not sure as far as the um, annexations in the West Bank. But I think that was a very calculated move by Netanyahu because what he basically did was force the hand of some of these Arab nations. Now, I saw this tweet from Ben Rhodes, who just drives me absolutely bonkers. <laughs> but he was like, yeah, but this was already going on, you know, and, you know, the, 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 no big deal. Like, what are you talking about? It was no big deal. You would have done it. But your path to the success was just stupid and moronic. You can't alienate our allies and you can't prop up their biggest foe, the biggest foe of the entire Arab League. You can't do that and expect them all to play nicely. So, you know, if there's one thing, I bet I'm sure uh, somehow the Obama administration is going to claim some kind of victory over this. They're probably just going to say it was all they're doing. But you know what? I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that, because without your utter incompetence and propping up Iran, this would never have happened. So so good job. Nice, <laughs> nice job, Obama. Administration. What a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, accomplishment for the Obama administration. I mean, that is one of the <laughs> things that people are saying is that, OK, well, this has been going on behind the scenes for a while. They've been working together behind the scenes for a while. Why is it such a big uh, deal that they're admitting it publicly? So them admitting it publicly, and I do think that it had to do with the settlement uh, situation. I I do believe, I give credit to Netanyahu, I think that that was the final straw that said, hey, look, we can both have a win-win here. You can win, I can win. We can both get, you know, come out, you know, as winners in the, in the situation. If I, if you come out publicly say this, and I'll say yeah, it's because I conceded to you on on, on this very issue. Um, I, I think so. I, I think that was the general strategy. I, I think that the fact that they were have been cooperating in the past says a lot about the overall, you know, reality on the ground there. Iran is a big problem. A strong coalition against Iran is what is what is needed. And now they don't really have to. They they don't have to continue to to just let it be quiet. Like I said. 22 members of the Arab League did not. Uh, um, there's 22 members of the Arab League. Before a couple of days ago, there were 20 of them that did not recognize Israel. 20. Now that number.
number is 19. Now the uh, rumors are that Oman's going to jump on board. There's other rumors that Bahrain's going to jump on board. Saudi Arabia could be next. On and on and on and on. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling to see how this is going to fall apart. In fact, I see one scenario where it actually could go very, very well. And that's if Iran, the Iranian regime goes down, that will be the final uh, thing that's keeping this uh, animosity towards Israel alive. We try to keep the optimism to a minimum on this show, just so you know. You don't <laughs> yeah. I want you to cross any lines. Um, I, th- I was thinking about it from the other perspective, though, because obviously we're all celebrating this, and I'm, I'm very happy about it. And it's a big accomplishment for the Trump administration. Uh, this close to an election, it's obviously big, but it's big anyway at any time. Yeah. I, if I'm a settler, however, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm in the West Bank or I'm about to go to the West Bank, it does. I, I, how are they going to take this? Because I feel like if I'm in the middle of going and I'm, I'm the one taking the risk, I'm the one going there in the first place, and then they're just going to give up on me and and let that land go. I'm going to be a little pissed off no? They, yeah, and it's a good point, and they are, and I've seen several of them come out and criticize this, saying, hey, what's up, you know, BB, you, you left us out to dry, you know, uh-huh. you used us as a political pawn, and I, I don't, there's no real good way to uh, to explain to them, like, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I terrible I, I news for you. Them. Yes, that's exactly what happened. I do feel for them because, you know, Israel is a is a very, you know, finite place with finite territory. And there's not a whole lot of room to expand. That's going to be an issue. And I guess, you know, it is telling that, you know, Netanyahu didn't come out fully and say, look, we're never going to do this in the future. You know, it's just it's kind of like this is what we're doing now. But, you know, the the Arab Arab nations might probably understand this, you know, reality as well. I the the sad thing is that I, I don't believe any of the Arab world actually cares. I don't think they give a crap about the Palestinians. I no. think they care about the land. That's what they've always cared about. But the thing here is, and this is a very good point for all the people, the radicals and everyone that will start protesting this and coming out against us. This is the solution where everyone gets a win. This is a win on both sides because when you've before there was only Israel was at the table and maybe a couple other nations. There was nobody else in the Arab Arab world that was sitting at the negotiation table. Now you, those seats are going to start to fill up. Now if you if a two state solution is your thing, that's what you want to go for. Now you can actually talk about it because people are actually there at the table. Mm. So this is the way to go forward, and I think the rest of the Arab world is realizing that. Uh, let me bring you back to um, a, a documentary you guys did for the Blaze not too long ago. You were in Jerusalem. Uh, when all of this was going on, when the when the embassy was being moved, you were there. Uh, you were watching it happen. You were, uh, you know, there was talk of attacks all the time. We, you know, were told war was going to break out at any second. This was the worst thing that could ever happen, and the worst thing a president could ever do. And here we are, a few years later. I, we're, the exact opposite of what everybody said has happened. Looking at that whole string of events that you were, you know, uh, right in place for, what do you think about that looking back uh, at the move to Jerusalem? Well, I'm surprised that we are still here because but what, by the way the media was covering this and other some other world leaders, I expected the entire world to explode the moment <laughs> that the embassy opened up. It was absolutely ridiculous. We showed up there and um, there was so much security 
um, by the Israelis because they, I don't think they even really knew what to expect, but they handled the situation perfectly. There wasn't an overwhelming uh, response like what they expected, not then and not in the days uh, uh, pr- uh, pr- after that. Um, it's ex- you mentioned that it was you know the exact al- opposite outcome happened. And it's also the ex- exact opposite outcome of what they said um, pursue, for the Trump administration to pursue this peace plan. They said that it was going to be catastrophic. They said, no, 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 we have to do what you know Ben Rhodes and Obama told us to do. We have to empower Iran to be the counterweight in this, which w- the, most of us were like, are you kidding me? That's the worst idea ever. So they said this couldn't be done. Well, now it's been done. It, there's a clear path we can see to go forward, and they just have to stick to it. Uh, as far as the election goes, is this just a blip on the on the screen in August and it's gone by September, or is it something we're going to be thinking about when it comes to be November? Oh man, I before I asked me that ten years ago, I'd say man, he he went seventy more steps towards victory. Right. Um, but now, it, I mean, come on, like we don't even remember what happened last week, and somehow <laughs> they'll try to say the Trump administrations did something bad in all this, and they'll have they'll get the majority of the country to believe it. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. No, I, it doesn't seem like any news will ever stick around longer than two days. Uh, Jason Buttrell, head researcher, head writer for the Glenn Beck program. I uh, can catch him uh, usually he's on here on Wednesdays. Uh, check. Pr- previewing what's going on on Glenn's show. And of course, you can go to blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you'll save 10 bucks. You can get all of Glenn's shows and all of uh, my shows as well. Jason, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks a lot. All right, back in a second. You know, in some ways, this has been a disappointing election season uh, because Hillary Clinton hasn't been here. I mourn it every single day. Luckily, people keep talking to her for some freaking reason, and they ask a very interesting question. Hey, what are you doing? Are you going to do this or what? Um, are you going to participate in this administration? Here's her quote. I'm ready to help in any way I can because this will be a moment where every American, I don't care what party you are, I don't care what age, race, gender, I don't care. Every American should want to fix our country. So if asked to serve, you really certainly should consider that. I don't think anyone wants it to be considered from you, Hillary. And you keep saying things like, I'm ready to help in any way I can. The way you help is to go away. Go away. That, that would help your party. Go away. Stop reminding people that you exist. That would help. It's just true. Back in a second. Joining me now is Dan Andros from FaithWire.com. Dan, thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Um, I assume, uh, you know, you're going to (laughs) you uh, you only have a few more weeks here uh, on your whole promise to never watch another NFL game. Is this is this really going to happen? Uh, Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, first of all, on my the football team, the Washington football team, which is my favorite team, uh, was my favorite team. Uh, now their star running back has been charged with uh, some sort of sexual assault and is no longer on the team. So it's going well for them, uh, making it just all the much easier for me to uh, not follow them or the league. I mean, it, you know, as sad as it is to say, if we're going to abandon our teams over sexual assault allegations, there are going to be no teams in the NFL. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> uh, not a positive uh, commentary no. on the league, no. but I will say probably true. Um, so it's interesting because we, I've been, we went through these three or four months or whatever it was, seemed like about three or four years without sports. 
And we thought, hey, when these things come back on, it's going to be a rush to the televisions because everyone's going to be so starved to see something. And I really did feel that way as the sports were beginning to come back. And there's been moments where I felt that way watching them. But it's been so overloaded with BLM wokeness that it's been hard to focus on the actual game. Yes, it has been. And for me, um, you know, I, basketball is really the only option I have left. Football, you know, they lost <laughs> me. We've been over that. But, um, you know, golf, I'm a big golf fan. I, I just, without Tiger in contention, and it's just never been the same for me. So it's okay. I'll watch a little bit of that baseball. I have four kids that are young. I don't have eight hours a night to watch baseball games. Um, hockey. God bless you. If you're watching hockey, I just, I'll never be desperate enough to watch <laughs> hockey. So, so basketball is all I have left and my team, the Celtics are actually good. Um, but they are trying very hard to make me not watch I, you know, black lives matter is, um, splattered all over the court for everyone to see. And it's just like, you know, they jam it in your face. There was a promo that said racism is everywhere. That's how it started. And mm. I was kind of, like, oh, oh, it's everywhere. OK, I better look around for it. Um, so <laughs> it's just been yeah, it's been difficult to stomach just the forced messaging, uh, which Adam Silver said was unavoidable. And mm. he felt it was like the responsible thing to do. And my reaction to that is, oh, this is you being responsible. You put the name of an organization that's radically Marxist and whose protesters are out saying, give us your stuff, white people. I, if that's the responsible thing, I'd hate to see this guy when he's acting irresponsibly. <laughs> it does. I'm surprised because the NBA is the worst of the bunch, too. I mean, not a huge surprise, I suppose, on that front, as they've been kind of the most progressive organization here in a while, unless you happen to be uh, a Uyghur in China. Totally different story. Then then they're not progressive at all. They're very much you know, for the <laughs> imprisonment. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, they can't think of anything to say about that whatsoever. And if someone does say, God forbid, stand with Hong Kong as as the people fighting for their freedom are being thrown in prison as we speak, God forbid they'd be able to mention anything like that. Um, but the NBA has, has really been the most aggressive. I've watched some NBA. So, you know, I really am able to look at this and just say, look, I don't care what these people are telling me about this stuff. Just just can I see I I'm they're cutting in to the actual sport, right? Like, it's yeah. not even, I mean, I think as a big sports fan, Dad, we've been watching sports together for a million years, and you go back and you watch the Olympics, right? It's all heartwarming stories about, like, you know, the athlete's mom who did X, Y, and Z, or the, you know, the cousin of a cousin's cousin, and you're like, okay, can I watch the stupid sport? It's right. that times a thousand now with just left-wing politics and, and crazy, you know, revolution mixed in. It is unwatchable for anyone who isn't a hardcore liberal. You can't watch it. And it's like, do they, yep. I mean, that's why the NBA ratings are down. It's so in your face. You can't escape it. Let's try to help them, Stu. I mean, if they opened the NBA game, you know, the announcers are out there. You got Mike Breen and Mark Jackson out there. And they said, hey, wow, we're just uh, you know here tonight with another game and we've got some great messages from the players here. And man, we are talking about a big social justice <laughs> issue tonight. Um, all of the unborn babies being slaughtered in the womb and we <laughs> finally get to give them a voice tonight. And we've got this big fetus right here on the court uh, that we're showing um, that, that to remind everyone about this issue. 
Do you think people would be like, oh, social justice? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I no. don't. If they put a, I, I will say I would tune in if they put a fetus on the court, though. If that, <laughs> I have to at least see it for a moment. They just have like red splattered paint all over the court. And like, this would not be appropriate. And everyone on the left would understandably say, guys, I want to watch your sport. I understand that half the population thinks this way, but I'm not in half that population. Do I must I suffer through your constant messaging? And I would understand that. You know, it's the same reason I wouldn't advocate for the fetus court, because the fetus court doesn't make any sense because people are there to watch basketball. I don't understand why people on the left can't get the fact that this is a, an inherently political message. It's not just, hey, Black Lives Matter, because if it was Black Lives Matter, everyone could agree on all lives matter and, we, and, and this issue would go away. It's clearly uh, got a lot more to it than actual lives. Yeah, and I think the reason they can't understand it, Stu, is because uh, this is what the left has done, I mean, I guess brilliantly over the past several decades, is they argue from a moral high ground standpoint. So all of their positions are not actually based in usually rational argument that goes beyond bumper sticker slogans. And so um, they've positioned themselves as the arbiters of moral good. So, you know, if you're a Republican, well, you're racist, you're this, you're that. And if you're with us, you know, it's you are standing for the little guy. You're a social justice champion. Um, That's how they position themselves. So that's how they see the issues. They see themselves as right and morally good and anyone who opposes them as morally wrong. Um, You know, whereas the right tends to argue these things on an individual basis, we judge things by merit. So, you know, we don't look at things as systemic and, and everything. We look at things, you know, based on the facts surrounding the case. But um, as far as winning hearts and minds, it's more difficult to do that from, from the statistical standpoint. I mean, like look at George Floyd is a perfect example. You know, they said, look at this, this is because of these racist cops and, and the racist country, whereas, you know, and then Republicans turn around and say like, well, yeah, but this is only X percent of the time that this is happening. Yeah. And so which one of those arguments sways hearts more when you're seeing a gut wrenching video? It's I mean, it should be the the fact should work. I mean, rational people should be able to look at that. But, um, you know, the emotional argument tends to have a lot of sway. And I think that's what we're seeing, you know, manifest itself here in the NBA. Well, I always this, I come back to this question a lot because there's a, there's several different like strains of the conservative movement, and you have people who are making those emotional arguments. I mean, Glenn Beck has always been really really good at doing that. Um, I like my stats. I like my graphs. I mean, we sit here and do Nerdapalooza and conservative nerds unite every single night, um, and I, I kind of tend to land after thinking about it in this in this place where you really do need both. You really do need to have both sides of that. And I would even go to the point of like someone who, you know, you see a lot of these activists who are out there in the street and they're, they're, they're pushing back and they're, they're, um, you know, they're protesting the other side. They're showing up at rallies and they're filming the crazy videos, uh, you know, with Antifa and all this stuff. Like you have to have that too. You have to be able to have both sides of this or you're not a movement. You're just a bunch of nerds or you're a bunch of activists. And, and, and that's, that just doesn't work in the long run. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you need a good balance there. I mean, because it's I mean, 
I'm not saying that that that's a good thing that the left wins people with these, you know, emotional arguments yeah. that are nothing more than bumper sticker slogan. I think it's terrible, but it just for whatever reason it seems to be working. I, I don't understand. I don't know, I don't know how you can explain it any other way that the NBA would fall for a literal self-described Marxist organization <laughs> that is I mean they would never put Tea Party Patriots on the on the court. No. Uh, never. I mean they never do something like that or some conservative issue. So it's really mind boggling. I mean, even for, you know, the NBA or, you know, Amazon or whatever corporations are adopting Black Lives Matter as a slogan, I, you know, it, it really is mind boggling that that they have suddenly caved. I mean, Adam Silver was like, it's unavoidable. Yeah, it was avoidable. Actually, you didn't have to do any of this stuff. Like no one was forcing you to do this. Like yeah. what, what would have happened if you didn't? You control the broadcasts of these games. Uh, yes. You know, you can kind of set the rules. <laughs> Um, let me uh, switch gears here for a minute and go uh, to a church um, uh, and the pastor, John MacArthur, who uh, has been fighting with the government in California and trying to say, hey, you know what we should be able to do? Hold services. And we're thinking that as a church, we should have people gather in the same room, sing some songs, hear some messages, uh, you know, the basics and maybe have a little bit of a crowd. Uh, they've been fighting with a the court. There was a kind of a decision in this one. Can you walk us through it? Uh, yes. Well, there was an update. Uh, Jenna Ellis, who was um, uh, the Thomas More Society attorney that was you know, working with John MacArthur uh, on this case, and she tweeted out just a little bit ago this afternoon uh, that she said an historic win today for John MacArthur and Grace Community Church. Judge allows indoor services with singing and no attendance cap. Church agrees to adhere to mask and social distancing until uh, full hearing. So that's a that's a big win for him because, you know, California, of course, has been a little more aggressive on the regulation side. The church singing thing was a bizarre one mm. um, that, that they were trying to uh, crack down on. And I think where John MacArthur, you know, really drew the line was when they made it indefinite. And he was like, uh, no, you can't. No, you can't just tell us to meet indefinitely. And Interestingly for his church, he, he was doing the online thing. He, he had that set up and he that's how they started. No one was at the church. And he said people just started showing up again. They just started coming coming into church without them like really you know announcing it or telling them to or anything. And next thing he knew, it was like half full and then full. And so they're like, all right, we'll just I guess that's what you guys want to do. We'll just meet. So um, and then the counties and the city started to threaten to sue him and everything else. So. Uh, he countersued back, and it looks like he got a win. It just seems like whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to go to church in large groups and worship, it is just not the business of the government to get involved in that. I mean, I would, I would probably say a packed church of singing. When we've seen multiple super spreader events that have happened around singing and choirs, choir practice. There's one in Georgia. There was one in, in Seattle. It's been a recurring theme. However... We have a freaking constitution that protects your right to worship, uh, to to, to uh, your right to your, your faith and to be able to practice it as you see fit. And I don't I, like I can't think of, honestly, I can't think of any time, even even temporary. It really bothers me, but certainly not indefinite that you can stop this. This is the United States of America. It was founded on these principles. They're incredibly important. And I just don't see how we've gone down this road for this long. I'm surprised it's lasted this long. Yeah, I, I'm surprised it has too. And um, I think churches by and large have been trying, you know, to um, follow the rules. But I mean, at some point, 
you know, there's going to be mm-hmm. a tipping point and they're just going to be like, uh, no, we're not, we're not doing this this way anymore. Because I mean, in the church still, even when they meet, I, even I know, you know, people who have been to grace to grace community church there in California. And they were saying, you know, they had an outdoor service and that they were giving out masks and doing all the, you know, the yeah. hand sanitizers and spacing. So they were doing all the things like they weren't being like crazy about it. Um, but it's just like this wild notion that maybe we should be able to meet in person if we want to. It's really not a good uh, setup to be like, oh, gosh, is the government going to come get us if we do this? Like, that shouldn't be a thing in America. No, it should not. Uh, Dan Andros, the site is faithwire.com. Check it out. Subscribe to their YouTube page as well. Dan, uh, thanks for coming on the program. All right. Thanks, Sue. All right. Talk to you in a little bit. Uh, we'll be back in just a second. And now a special message from StuDoesMerch.com. Go buy stuff there. There's lots of good stuff there. Andrew Cuomo is awful gear. Chris Cuomo is worse gear. You also, you also have the Nancy Pelosi pen, which is still the best-selling item in the entire store. It uh, still continues to sell to this day. I love Nancy Pelosi sucks pens. Uh, you can go there as well. Uh, we have some really good election stuff that's going to be up there as well coming very soon. Don't miss your opportunity. StuDoesMerch.com. We'll see you next week.